All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, if you're a North Carolina fan, please don't tune me out for the rest of the, the message. I, I see those nods. Um, yes, I'm a UK fan, but I still love you in spite of our diversity and differences. All right, uh, this morning we're continuing our Relate sermon series. We are going to be digging into Galatians chapter 2, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's go over to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chair around you. We have them distributed around the room, and in our Bibles, you're going over to page 973, page 973 to Galatians chapter 2. I wasn't raised in a home with southern manners. So when I met Lauren and started hanging out with her family, there were bound to be problems. Um, I was raised in California, and I went to college in Iowa, and uh, man, it felt like a million miles away from home out there in the cornfields of Iowa, and that first Thanksgiving break rolled around, and, and everybody was going home for the break, and, and uh, Lauren invited me to spend the break at her house. We weren't dating Yet, in fact, at that point, we didn't even really like each other, but, but she has this thing for strays, and um, she saw the lost look in my eye as the break was approaching and I had nowhere to go. And that was my first experience of a Southern Thanksgiving. If you've never experienced a Southern Thanksgiving, I feel sorry for you. So much food. Uh, it was incredible, and Southern food, too. Right, they brought in a freezer truck of butter just for that meal. It was incredible, um, and we were sitting around the table when it happened. And when it happened, I didn't even know that it had. All I knew was that the loud, laughing table suddenly grew still and silent, and Lauren was looking at me out of the corners of her eyes, and I so I started thinking about what I we'd been talking about or what I had just said, and then innocently and ignorantly I asked, is this because I said fart? The kids' eyes got wider. Everyone got stiffer. I did not realize that fart is the F word of the southern table. Um, I just had no idea what line I was crossing. That word had never been spoken in the home, let alone at the table. Now, thankfully, Lauren's mom started giggling uncontrollably at that point, which just saved me. I mean, holy cow, because then the kids were free to laugh, and everybody laughed, and the tension was off. And, and, and here's the thing, you guys, um, for real. I, I broke a rule I just didn't know existed, right? I mean, in my house, that was nothing. <laughs> that didn't even make the radar of inappropriate words in my house. And so um, I didn't know the rule was there. Uh, I gave an offense in a place where I didn't know there was a fence to give. So it's said that, that there are three things you should never talk about in polite company, race, sex, and politics. So far in this sermon series, we've talked about politics and sex, and so this morning we're going to go ahead and talk about race. Um, I think we might as well go for the trifecta and just kind of push in um, and talk about that too. Here's the thing. I know it's a topic that is hard to approach without offending someone. Uh, Now, there are some people that probably need to be offended, and I don't mind bringing the offense in that case, but talking about race and racism is tricky because the conversation is filled with emotion and fear and anxiety and hurt, so I want to do it carefully, 
But here's the thing, I, I don't think I really have an option. I believe the gospel equips us to talk about difficult things with humility and with grace, but it also compels us to talk about these things with boldness and increasing clarity. Not only does it give us the ability to talk about this stuff, but it gives us a mandate to do so. If we're going to keep in step with the gospel, we need to walk in grace into the difficult tensions that separate us. So let's take a look at our text, and then we're going to dig in, all right? So we're going to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The word of the Lord. All right, notice that this confrontation, even though it's in a letter that was written to the Galatians, Paul is talking about something that occurred in Antioch. And so I just want to give you a little bit of background on Antioch because it's important for the context. Antioch was a unique um, place, a unique church, a unique environment in church history. So the book of Acts, talk about that for a moment. The book of Acts is the book of history in the New Testament. So when you read the book of Acts, it begins with the resurrection of Jesus, and it goes all the way through Acts 28, which is Paul basically going to Rome, being delivered into the hands of the Romans, and it ends totally open-ended. In fact, one of the organizations we're part of is called Acts 29, and the reason is because we believe we're actually living out the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. We're still living out this history, that the mandate given in Acts chapter 1 is still relevant to us today. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples. He's, he's saying, look, I, I'm, 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 I'm up from the dead. I'm good. We're all alive, but I'm going to take off for a while. I'm going to be leaving, and I'm going to come back after a gap. While I'm gone, here are your marching orders. While I'm gone, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria and Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So, so locally, regionally, and globally. That was the mandate given to the early disciples. I want you to be my witnesses here and, and, and then out regionally and then eventually to the end of the earth. You have a message, right? I was, I was dead and now I'm back. I was raised from the dead. I paid the price for your sin. I was your substitute in death so you could be my partner in life. You have a message. Now I'm giving you a mission. And the mission is to go and tell. And as you tell... The message carries its own power. You will change the world. Not because you're smart enough or clever enough or political enough or organized enough. You will change the world because the message carries its own power. So I am giving you a mission to carry the message, and the message is the power of the mission. And what we see is that that message has the power to change the world. That's exactly what we saw in Antioch. All right, so Antioch was a hub of commerce at the time of Christ. It was the, the hub of the spice trade. The Silk Road ran through, right through there. The Persian Royal Road 
passed right through there. It is where the West and the Far East met. It is where commerce took place, where goods were traded, where people made money. And as a result, the city itself was very diverse. There were tradesmen from all over the world that came to Antioch because there was money to be made. And, and so they needed to be there at the hub in order to, to carry the business or to work with their, their home uh, development or whatever it was, right? They settled there. But here's the thing. They weren't a melting pot, right? That's a language we use in America. They weren't a melting pot, right? In a melting pot, everything gets boiled to the point where they just become one thing, kind of like southern green beans, right? I mean, it's just melted to the point of, of almost being all liquid, Right? They weren't a melting pot. They were more like a tossed salad, right? They, they were all together, but they kept their unique identities. So it was a very diverse culture, but that diversity stayed unique and separate. The people that were in that city, while they spoke the common language of commerce, which was Koine Greek, very much like English today, it was the common language of business, they still kept their separate languages, their, their different dietary practices, their different forms of dress, their different cultures, their different religions. And they came around. What brought all these different groups together was the commonality of commerce. It was money. Money was the center. That's why they were there. If there was no money to be made there, those people wouldn't have been there. They would have stayed in their, in their more homogenous cultural centers where people looked like them and spoke like them and dressed like them and worshipped like them, right? And so they were there but the only place they really had a commonality was, was in the exchange and of business. So in Acts chapter 11, a report comes to the elders in Jerusalem about something remarkable that's happening in Antioch. A new church was, was being formed in Antioch that was unlike any that had ever been experienced. And so they sent Barnabas, one of the leaders in the church, to go check it out. Now, up to this point, the church was primarily Jewish. So like first year, they just stayed in Jerusalem, and the church exploded in Jerusalem with Jewish believers. Persecution came after about a year, which pushed a lot of the believers out into Samaria and Judea, the surrounding areas. But as they went, they would go to the synagogues, they would go to the Jewish centers, and they would share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with other Jews, because they were the people they had a common history with, a common language with, a common ground of, of, of reasoning with right? And so up to this point, the movement had been primarily um, Jewish believers sharing the gospel with Jews. In Antioch, the church broke out of its Jewish cocoon, and an amazing new thing was born. In Antioch, you see a genuinely diverse group of believers, culturally diverse, racially diverse, linguistically diverse, all coming together around a new center. The center that drew them now wasn't commerce, it wasn't money, it was faith in the risen Christ. And now that they have a new center, they have a new identity that pulls them together. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are actually sent out from the church in Antioch uh, to begin their first missionary journey. And so right now what we're seeing is this transition. Jerusalem used to be kind of the mother church, the most important church. It's shifting. Antioch is becoming the new center of Christianity. Antioch is is going to become this new hub from which everything moves out. And in Antioch, uh, in in Acts 13, we get a a description of the leaders. And it's really a diverse list. You've got Barnabas, who is a Hellenistic Jew, so he he is racially a Jew, but he was raised in a Greek environment. So he speaks Greek and and he thinks uh, like a Greek. He was educated in the Greek system. He He was a Hellenistic 
Jew. You had Paul, who was a Jewish Jew. I mean, that guy was raised in Jerusalem. He was taught by the best Jewish leaders. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Jew of the Jews. He thought Jewishly. He was shaped by a Jewish sense of uh, tradition and culture. There was Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, Now, Niger is the Latin word for black or dark. Now, I want to just set the stage a little bit. Up to this point, there aren't any white people in this scenario. A lot of times we have this way of looking back and thinking about Paul as kind of this white guy and, and all these, you know, we think in terms because we're used to seeing our race. Um, in, 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 and so up to this point, um, these, were, these were Middle Easterners, right? They're olive-skinned. There are, it's going to be a while yet before the gospel reaches out to the Anglo-Saxons and, and, and what we consider the white people, right? So, so when they call Simeon, they nickname him Niger. What that means is they were all darker skinned, but he was very dark. So he was somebody who was very dark skinned. Um, and, and then you have Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is on the northern side of Africa. It would be modern day Libya. So you had an African on the leadership team. You had Menaean, who specifically it said he was a member of the court of Herod and a friend of of Herod. Now, Herod Antipas was not the nicest guy. He's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. He, he's the one who had that kind of perverted dance thing. With, I mean, he's just, he wasn't a nice guy. Nobody liked him. But what this tells us about Menaean is that he was raised with, with wealth. He was part of being the upper crust. This guy was raised around money and had money. This guy's friends were, were the shakers and the leaders of, of the political scene. They, they had influence, they had money, they had power. So Menaean, we don't know his race, but we knew, do know that he wasn't part of the working class. He wasn't in this city because he was a tradesman in need of trade. He, he was somebody who, who came from a different socioeconomic scale. He was, he was somebody who was very wealthy. So here's the thing. This is a diverse leadership team, and it reflected a diverse church. And as a result, people didn't know what to call them. And I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about people in the community, like people who lived in Antioch, unbelievers, because they weren't Jews, so they couldn't call them a Jewish sect. They weren't weren't Gentiles. They weren't Africans. They weren't Romans. They were this thing they had never seen before. So they started calling them Christians. It was the first time that term had ever been used. And it was given to them by the unbelievers of the community. They didn't adopt it themselves. The unbelievers in the community were trying to find a way to categorize them because they were unlike anything they had ever seen before. They were this group of people that had a new center, and it wasn't money. And they all talked about this guy named Christ. That seemed to be what brought them all together, and so they called them Christians. Antioch was the first place that this kind of crazy diversity grew out of the gospel, but it was not the last. It was new and beautiful and remarkable and a true sign of the kingdom. Like when people saw it, they were amazed. When people saw it, they were, they were like, what, 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 who are these people? What are they about? So much so that they had to try to find a category to even fit them, so they created an entire new category. They were a sign, a true sign of the kingdom. It was beautiful, but it was fragile. You can imagine how much tension would exist in a culture like this, in a group like this. They're sitting down and having sharing meals together. They speak different languages. They wear different clothing. They have different eating habits. They, they came from different backgrounds. They don't understand each other. They often mistrust each other because of their racial and, and cultural backgrounds. And yet here they are coming around the table of Christ, having to look at one another and have conversations with one another. It took a tremendous amount of humility 
A tremendous amount of of grace-motivated curiosity where they learned about each other and and had conversations and, and broke down some of their preconceived prejudices and ideas. It was a beautiful thing, but it was a fragile thing. And by grace, they pushed into that tension and experienced joy. The gospel enabled them to navigate the tension and find unity. So this helps us understand the tension in our passage. This is going to help you understand why Paul freaks out a little bit, okay? So verses 11 and 12. So when Cephas, Cephas is Peter, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's strong language. Why did he do that? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter came to Antioch to check out what was happening. And while he was there, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was having a shared meal with all the believers. Now, remember, Peter had already been told by God it was cool, right? Peter had that vision of a blanket coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of animals, many of them unclean. And the Spirit of God said, rise up and eat, man. Pulled pork, you need this. This is really good, right? It's not off limits anymore, right? Dig in, man. Pork steak, yes, right? And so Peter did. Peter had his theology adjusted by a vision of God. He was no longer bound by the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. He was freed by grace, right? So when he got to Antioch, he's sitting at the table feasting with the, with the Gentiles. Now, there was probably tension in his heart because think about it. He had been raised in a Jewish environment shaped by a Jewish culture. He had been taught to despise unclean foods and to despise the people who ate them. There was probably a part of his heart that was sitting there while he had the freedom. He knew he had the freedom to consume that was like a little bit tense in the process. Like this was new. It tasted really good. But this is not how I was shaped. There was was an identity piece here, a culture piece. This is what used to make me important. This is what used to set me apart. This is what used to define my, my group or these dietary restrictions but it's not what defines me now because I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm no longer defined by my past racial and cultural shaping. I am now defined by my faith in Jesus. Then Jews show up from Jerusalem and they said they were Jews from James. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so by showing up and saying they were from James, it was kind of like they were pushing their resume across the table. Like, hey, we're kind of important. You should pay attention to us. There might have been a little bit of, of, of posturing on their part because they were feeling a little threatened. There was diminishing of the church in Jerusalem and a rising of the church in Antioch. All the influence and power and you people used to look to them and come to them for answers. All of that was shifting. The center of Christianity was moving to Antioch and there was a diminishing of their influence and power. So they may have been coming in a little defensive, um, definitely looking for a little bit of influence. Now, it never says they said anything. But they came in and they exerted a subtle pressure so that when Peter was sitting at the table with the Gentiles, these people sat apart. The Jews sat by themselves and ate kosher food. And Peter could feel the eyes in the back of their head. And it created a pressure, a twisting of shame in his heart because it triggered all those things that had been shaped in him from his his training 
his previous prejudice, his, his previous uh, conception of what made God's people God's people. And so he pulled apart. He pulled apart. So this was a dietary issue, but it wasn't. Some people saw it as a theological issue, but it wasn't. It was at its heart a cultural issue. It was a racial issue. And it sent a very clear message. What Peter was saying was, you need to be like me to be with me. As leaders in the church, it's an even stronger message. What he was saying, since he was a leader in the church, an apostle of Christ, is if you want to be close to God, you've got to be like me. Now, here's the thing. It wasn't that Peter was overtly teaching this. Peter didn't condemn the Gentiles for eating their food. He just quietly pulled away and started eating with the Jews. Right? He didn't say, you've got to be Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. But by his actions, he was communicating that the only way to really be accepted was to be like him. So there wasn't false teaching coming out of his mouth, but there was false teaching coming out of his actions. And it had a very clear effect. Take a look at verse 13. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. Now I want you to catch this. It's not that Barnabas did anything wrong. He stopped doing something that was right. Right? It wasn't wrong to eat with the Jewish visitors, but it was wrong to stop eating with the Gentiles. He was allowing his racial and cultural identity to come before his gospel identity. He was allowing the shaping of, of, of who he was according to the world, the color of his skin, his religious and cultural background. He, he allowed that to define him more than his new identity in Christ. And as he did that, he distorted the gospel of grace with his life, even as he continued to teach it with his mouth. And Paul, as he was watching this, saw the danger of it. It was a betrayal of the gospel, and it threatened the church itself. Here's the thing. People could attack that church, and they did from the outside, and would have no effect on the actual core unity and joy and faith and and experience of grace of that church. But you undermine the common experience of grace from inside the church, and you will destroy that church. So remember, the power is in the message of the gospel. The gospel carries its own power. They were on mission with a message, and it was the message that gave them the power to be on mission because it's the message that transforms their hearts. And when they were acting this way, they were no longer keeping in step with the message that had been entrusted to them. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, like, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? It wasn't that they were teaching a false gospel. It was that they were endorsing a false way of living out the gospel. They were not keeping in step with the gospel. 
what this means is that it's not just important that we know the truth, it's important that we live out the implications of the truth. You can know the truth. You can have right theology, but if you are not living out the implications of the gospel, you are denying the power of the gospel. And if you are not keeping in step with the gospel, you are misrepresenting the gospel and you are just as much a false teacher as somebody who twists the gospel in its message. The message of the gospel calls us to a radical form of community that is anchored in grace, not a common racial or cultural experience. It calls us to walk in our new identity in Christ, not our old identity of of who we were before we came to know Christ or how we're defined by this world. As believers, what we share in common in Jesus is greater than anything that would separate us in this world. We all come with a desperate need, and that desperate need was met by the grace of God. That's what defines us. That's what unites us. And that is more powerful than our racial or cultural heritage. Later in the book of Galatians, Paul will say that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. It was a very clear statement that your primary identity is not your race. Your primary identity is not your socioeconomic status. Your primary identity is not your gender. It is your common bond in Christ, your shared need for grace, and your shared experience of grace. And the way you live out that truth is just as important as your understanding of it. It's not enough to have good theology. You have to keep in step with that theology. You have to live out the implications of the gospel, or you are denying the power of the gospel. Our message, uh, our message of the gospel calls for a radical inclusion of community in grace. If we then actively or passively endorse attitudes or behaviors or systems of exclusion, we are not keeping in step with the gospel. And we are misrepresenting the gospel just as much as those who tinker with the message. So Paul rebuked Peter. Now, I'm sure he did it privately. We talked about how to handle conflict a couple weeks ago, right, in the church, and you handle that first privately, and I have no doubt that's exactly what Paul did. Paul went and spoke with him privately, and now we don't know how that went down. We're not told. So it is possible that that Peter didn't receive that confrontation well. (laughs) He was like, hey, bro, I've been at this longer than you, right? I walked with Jesus. I ate with Jesus. i I was a leader in the Jerusalem church. You're like this new apostle. I've been around for a while. Maybe you just need to back off. And, you know, maybe it went poorly. I have a feeling it didn't. I think it actually was probably received well. Then why was there a public rebuke? Because leaders who act publicly often need to be corrected publicly. His actions were, were much more impactful than simply a private situation. When, when he acted publicly in a way that wasn't in step with the gospel, there were ripple effects. There were ongoing effects of those choices that had to be corrected. So while his sin was public, his, his rebuke also needed to be public. So when Paul brought the rebuke publicly, it actually rebuked everybody who also followed along with Paul or was being tempted to or follow along with Peter or was being tempted to follow along with Peter. It was his way of correcting the ongoing negative effects that would have come from Peter's poor choices um, and sinful choices in that moment. 
Now, we do know that it ended well. Peter and Paul, they were good. They were fine. In fact, they, they were co-laborers. Peter was the, the apostle to the, to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and they labored um, in separate fields but alongside each other. Paul and Barnabas were good. Paul and Barnabas went on the, the missionary journey together, so they launched out from Antioch, and, and everything was good. So it ended well. It ended well, but it needed to be corrected. So, so what does this mean for us today? All right. So we've unpacked the scenario. You, you understand the confrontation. What does it mean for us? How do we keep in step with the gospel today? I think there are some very direct applications that we need to dig into. First, we need to see the gospel's call for racial and cultural inclusion. Like we need to see that in the gospel is a call for inclusiveness. That the table of grace has to be wide open for it to actually be a table of grace. There is a call for racial and cultural inclusion. Here's the thing. We're a lot like Antioch in America today. We are a tossed salad of racial backgrounds and cultural identities, and we don't often mix well. There's a reason that 90% of American churches are monocultural. You think about it. 90% of American churches are monocultural. You have white churches, you have black churches, you have Korean churches. 90% of American churches are monocultural. And some of you might be like, well, what's wrong with that? If everybody's happy, what's the big deal? Right? If the white churches get along with the black churches, get along with Korean churches, and everybody's happy, but they're separate... What's the big deal? What, what do we lose out on? Well, let me ask you this. What would have happened in Antioch if they had formed six different churches instead of one? What would have happened in Antioch if you had, if you had formed a, a Libyan church and, and a Hellenistic Jewish church and a Jewish-Jewish church and a, and a Serenian church? You know what I'm saying? Like, like each one, so that they all kind of looked like each other, had the same background, dressed like each other, had the same language. What would have happened? Two things. The first is that they no longer would have been a clear sign of the kingdom to the surrounding culture. Unbelievers would have looked at that and said, well, okay, that's what we would do. That's how we would handle things. There would be nothing in that that would fundamentally challenge their worldly understanding of what makes people valuable. So yeah, you have your culture, you stay over there, I don't want you anyway. I got my culture, I'll stay over here because we're all better than you anyway, right? There's no indication in that that there's actually a kingdom of inverse values invading the world. They stop being a sign of the kingdom, and as a result, they would stop having power on mission. People were curious about the Antioch church because it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. It made them really uncomfortable, but while it made them uncomfortable, it also made them curious, like, what in the world is this thing that is so different? It is, it is something that is so different that it's kind of a taste of heaven. If they had not fought through to, to be unified in their diversity, they would not have demonstrated the radically inclusive nature of grace. The second thing that would have happened is they would have been impoverished by their lack of diversity. They would not have been pushed to grow out of their limited cultural and racial identities into their identity in Christ. 
Peter would have never been confronted. And you're like, well, that's, a bad, that's not a bad thing. That would be a good thing. It would avoid conflict. Well, let me ask you something. Do you think Peter grew as a result of that confrontation? Do you think Peter was, in fact, better having gone through it than, than not? I think Peter was probably thankful for that confrontation. You know why? Because it helped him identify areas of of racial and cultural prejudice in his own heart that were limiting him from growing into his identity in Christ. They were actually limiting him from growing into the freedom of grace. He came out of that confrontation more anchored in his identity in Christ, which means he was able to feast more fully on the joy of the kingdom. You guys, growing often hurts. That doesn't mean it's bad, right? Without growing pains, you don't grow. But if you try to avoid the pain, you don't don't grow. There's a a benefit. If, if, if If we avoid the diversity simply because it's uncomfortable, we limit ourselves and rob ourselves of growth and change that frees us into our identity in Christ. The gospel is a powerful message of inclusion around grace, and it is powered by the actual resurrection of Christ. We taste more of that power as we push into the tension that keeps us from including people that make us uncomfortable. We should be experiencing a kind of unity that only comes from the message of Jesus, not because we're a homogenous group that's comfortable, because we all look the same, sound the same, dress alike, and think alike. We want the kind of freedom and humility and joy that comes from from a deep experience of grace. Not a self-satisfied experience of comfort. So, if we're satisfied with the 90% American church rule, and just stay monocultural and not try to push into it, and not see that this is a natural outgrowth of the gospel, we will rob ourselves of the power of the witness. We will make ourselves less effective in our culture, in our time, sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others, and we will rob ourselves of a deeper experience of joy in the gospel because we will rob ourselves of the growth opportunities we need to push more deeply into our identity in Christ. Secondly, we need to push into the gospel's power to have racial and cultural conversations. The gospel calls us to humility. That was the first message in this series. If you remember way, way back when, um, we talked about the, the parable in which the tax collector and, and the Pharisee went up to the temple and pray, and, and, and the tax collector just stood there beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was a desperate, humble plea for grace, and he went home justified by God. He asked for grace. He received grace. He was transformed by grace. And we talked about how God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. No matter how moral they are, no matter how religious they are, no matter how much they have their act together, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. The outgrowth of that, we talked about this, was that we grow to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to to hear. When When we're... in relationship or pushing into the tension of, of, of relating with somebody we don't understand. Quick to hear. What is your experience? What is life like from your perspective? How is your life different from mine? How is your perspective different from mine? It makes us curious learners. 
If you're quick to hear, it means you are quick not to, to speak. You're slow to speak, right? So you're not, you're not putting your interpretation of them on them before they have the opportunity to speak for themselves. You're not taking all of the stuff you've learned from your favorite talk show speaker and, and, and political pundit and putting it on them and defining them before you even have an opportunity to learn from them. No, you're quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, slow to anxiety, slow to fear, slow to that tension of your heart that closes you down and makes you defensive and puts you in a posture where where you have things to defend and as a result you can't learn anything. The gospel should change the way we relate with people that are different from us. You guys, I was raised in the Pacific Northwest um, in California. Um, uh, I was all over California, but, but um, my, my elementary and middle school years were, were up in the Pacific Northwest, about four hours north of San Francisco, which is still four hours south of, of Oregon. California is very, very long. Um, and so I was up there in kind of the redwood fishing country. Here's the thing. The Pacific Northwest is one of the widest regions in the United States. And there are historical reasons for that. There are reasons that that is true, and I'm not going to unpack that. But, but it is one of the whitest regions. It has a, the least amount of, of diversity. So I didn't have, there weren't thriving pockets of African-American people for me to interact with. I was raised in a white environment by a white family, and that shaped me in ways I didn't understand. You, you just come to, to see the world from a very pers- specific perspective. Later, I moved to San Diego, and in San Diego, there was a much greater level of diversity. And, and so I started uh, uh, interacting with people with, from different racial and cultural backgrounds. And, and I actually developed friends with people who were, who were um, Mexican or African-American. And I started interacting with them. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean I actually grew an actual understanding. You can be side by side with people from different racial and cultural backgrounds and have no greater understanding of their way of viewing the world. Just because you have a black friend doesn't mean you understand what it means to be black in America, right? Just because you are around different cultures doesn't mean you've actually humbled yourself to learn from those different cultures. That's where I was coming out of that time. My real racial education began when I, many years later, enrolled at Harristow State College for night and weekend classes. I was pursuing my, my educational certification some of you have heard of Harrisville State College. It is right over in St. Louis. It is a historically black um, college university. Uh, and when I attended, <laughs> in many of my classes, I was literally the only white guy. I was in a room of African Americans, and I was the only white guy in the room. And like my first Thanksgiving dinner with Lauren's family, uh, I crossed many lines without even knowing there were lines to cross. I said many things that I regretted saying once I realized how they actually came across. Now, the thing with me is that when I have a question, I ask it. Um, and, and I tend to kind of push in, like uh, if I sense something I need to know or I feel a tension that needs to be pushed into, I tend to do that. And, and I remember very specifically being in one class. It was an African-American literature class. Uh, I was the only white student in there. We were studying African-American authors writing about the African-American experience, right? And, and in this class, what I found was there was a lament in these stories, in this poetry, 
that everybody in my class seemed to resonate with but me. There was a sadness and an anger that, that was being explored that I had a difficult time entering into. I mean, here's the thing. I'm in this room, and, and this is my understanding of racial understanding. You know, I'm thinking I'm the son of um, Irish immigrants on one side and Jewish immigrants on the other. I don't have any slave owners in my history. Uh, I, was never, I was never personally, my family line was never part of that. Um, we're all free. We all can work hard. So shouldn't we, and I actually, that's what I pushed into. I'm asking, I'm like, shouldn't we all just see ourselves as Americans? I mean, can't we just be colorblind? Why do we need to make race such a big issue, right? Aren't we all Americans? Shouldn't we just work out of that shared identity? So I got some pushback <laughs> on that, um, rightfully so, but I got some pushback on that. And then I really went for it. And I was like, all right, let me just ask you this. You guys don't really think the government's out to get you, do you? You don't really think the government's pumping drugs into your neighborhoods and, and purposely limiting opportunities for you in life. And you don't really believe the government is structured in such a way that, oh man, I got lit up. And it was justified. I was asking questions from a place of ignorance. And as a result, I was asking my questions in a way that um, assumed things that shouldn't be assumed. Thankfully, there were some very humble people in that class who became my friends and took me under their wing and said, look, you seem to be asking honest questions even though they seem ignorant. Let's, let's see if we can talk about this stuff. And so, as a result, this is what I learned. We're all Americans but there are very different American experiences. We're all Americans, but that doesn't mean your experience of America is everyone's experience of America. That was the, that was the first assumption I was making wrong. That just because I grew up in poverty and I had financial struggles, that somehow I related to the African Americans around me who also grew up in poverty and had struggles. I had a, um, a large a friend who was a large black male and he shared with me stories that helped me see that he had a very different American experience from me, uh, a normal-sized white guy. And thankfully, uh, he was a good enough friend that he humbly opened up his experience to me so that I could start to see. And he told me stories about his experience. He told me about going into stores and regularly being followed as soon as he showed up like security identified him and would follow him and what it was like to continually not just be assumed he was a criminal but to be treated like a criminal even though he was an upstanding citizen a pastor because he was dressed relaxed like I was he was treated a certain way he talked about what it was like to forget that he was a large black man he's like I forget it all the time I'm just me but I'm reminded when I get around someone and they look at me and they have fear in their eyes because they think large black men are dangerous. They think large black men are predators. They think large black men are violent. So he talked about what it's like to be in a room and try to shrink himself, to become less noticeable, 
Because when people become afraid of him, he's in danger. When people become afraid of him, he's the one that can in the end up being mistreated and abused. So he talked about just becoming constantly aware of trying to manage his own size because people found him threatening. He talked about what it was like to be pulled over and detained by the police, physically restrained by the police, and then released. And he was told that it was because he fit the description of somebody who committed a crime. And the description was a black man in this neighborhood. And then he asked me if I really found all of that that surprising. He's like, don't you know American history? I mean, really, don't you know? Do you really find this that surprising? I'm like, yeah, I, I think I know American history. I probably don't. I slept through most of the classes, honestly. Um, not a history buff. Literature guy, not a history buff. So he started unpacking a few things. 400 years ago, the first slave ships arrived in the colonies, 1619. And for the next 250 years, African-Americans were property. There were laws passed during this period of time that would forbid white people from marrying black people, but there were no laws telling white people they couldn't rape black people. And white slave owners regularly raped their black slaves. And that was because the African body became the most valuable commodity in America. Their body was more valuable than the crops they worked on. And they were traded and they were sold. They were worth much more than white indentured servants. Because white indentured servants could work themselves out of their, of their, of their servitude. But, but the, the black slave, the African slave, was bound to slavery in perpetuity. Africans could be owned forever. And they could produce more slaves. When the U.S. Constitution was ratified, African Americans were declared to be three-fifths human by the government. The government declared African Americans three-fifths human. That lasted until President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, followed by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. So about 150 years ago, time frame, about 150 years ago, legal slavery was abolished. The rights and the responsibilities of the Bill of Rights were for the first time extended to African Americans. They were given the right to vote, but not the freedom to vote. Because simultaneously in 1870, you had the first of the Jim Crow laws passed. Jim Crow laws legalized segregation. So during the Jim Crow era, African Americans were told where they could live where they could go to school, what jobs they could have, what streets they could walk down, what public restaurants they could eat at, what public hotels they could stay at, what bathrooms they could use. The Jim Crow laws stayed the law of the land until the mid-1950s. It wasn't until the protests of the 1960s 
that legislation started getting passed that actually pushed for a greater experience of equality, the, the constitutional rights that had been afforded former slaves or those who had heritage in slavery. You guys, that was only 50 years ago. That was only 50 years ago. And this was my friend's question for me. Do you really think we've become free of all of this systemic racism in 50 years? Do you really think we've become free of 300 years of systemic racism in 50 years? Just because you can't see the system doesn't mean it's not there. Just because you haven't felt the effects because you're white doesn't mean they're not there for those who aren't. You guys, I only knew my experience of America. And I arrogantly and ignorantly assumed that my experience was everyone's experience. You guys, the gospel calls me to humble listening. Not to be defensive. Not to try to make some political point. Not to posture. Not, not to, to come up with counter-arguments, but to listen. To grow in empathy for my brothers and sisters who have a very different American experience than I do. The gospel calls us to humble listening and humble learning. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. And slow to anxiety. Lastly, we need to see that not engaging is not an option. Not if you're going to keep in step with the gospel. Not engaging is not an option. When Peter started eating with the Jewish visitors, and Barnabas and the other Jewish leaders joined him, it wasn't like they were actively persecuting anyone. It wasn't like they were actively teaching false doctrine. But they were not keeping in step with the gospel. They were not living out the necessary implications of the gospel of grace. Their actions, as a result, undermined the very message they claimed to believe. And if Paul had stayed silent... If he had not just, if like, not joining them, but if he had just stayed silent and disengaged, he would have been just as guilty. Because passivity in the face of injustice is endorsement of the injustice. It says that Barnabas was carried away with Peter. That's very powerful language, very, very strong language. He was carried away. Barnabas was carried away with Peter. What that means is that he was just passively following along the cultural current. He wasn't actively swimming in the current. He was just passive in the face of it. He just went along with it. But that passivity was an active rejection of the gospel's call to grace and to fighting for a grace-centered community. Being a passive part of a cultural current still makes you an active part of the current. The gospel is a message of radical inclusion 
and disruptive grace. It is so radical that it gives us completely new identities in Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. You are not who you were, your racial and cultural heritage. That's not who you are. You are a new identity in Christ. You are a new, you are a son of the king, a daughter of the king. You are a member of the new kingdom. You are not defined by your racial or genetic makeup. You are defined by the future that Christ has declared over you as one who is victorious in resurrection over the brokenness of this world. Listen, you guys, we have a mission to carry the message, and the message carries its own power. Our job is to keep in step with the gospel. That means not engaging is not an option. Even though, as white Americans, we may have the privilege to avoid the conversation because it's not forced on us. That's not a privilege shared by most of our African-American brothers and sisters. They have to live with this stuff because they're born into it. My, my friend, man, he didn't choose to have that conversation. He didn't choose to have those experiences. His experience of America is his experience because there are systemic things in place that challenge him every day. We may have the privilege not to enter into that conversation. That doesn't mean we have the gospel freedom not to enter it. Not engaging is not an option. When we choose to exercise our privilege to stay distant and disconnected, to only see our view of reality and not enter into the experience of others, we impoverish ourselves and we diminish the effectiveness of the gospel, which means you are defrauding God of his glory. God has entrusted to us a mission to carry a message. And when we rob that message of its power, we are not honoring the mission. So to my minority friends, I have a plea. Please be humbly patient and gracious with us when we say stupid things, when we ask questions in inappropriate ways, when we assume things we shouldn't assume because we haven't learned yet, we shouldn't assume them. When we bring offenses that grow from ignorance, I would encourage you to grow in grace by showing us grace. To my white friends, please be humble learners because we have a lot to learn. We need to grow, which means we need to humble ourselves enough to ask the questions we haven't asked to listen to the stories we haven't listened to, to grow in an awareness that that we have not been forced to grow in because we don't know what we don't know, which is why we need to learn. I'm going to be posting a blog um, this week. I'll put it on the city. I'll post it on Facebook. But I'm going to list some of the resources that I have found most helpful and challenging in, in my progress in education, and, and in growing, and uh, some things that I haven't gotten to yet, but have been, uh, that, that when time allows, I will get there. I'll be putting out that list, um, and I encourage you, join me. Join me in being a learner. 
join me in humbling yourself enough to ask the questions that are difficult and uncomfortable to ask and to listen to the answers you need to hear so that you can actually understand the perspectives and experiences of people that are unlike you. Friends, we need to fight to stay in step with the gospel. Not just to defend the truths of the gospel, but to stay in step with the gospel. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen um, to help lead us uh, responding to the Spirit, and then we're going to share communion together. But let me pray for us as we go into our time of response. Father, I thank you for the radically inclusive nature of grace. That you invite us to feast at the table of your righteousness and goodness, not because of our racial heritage or our moral performance or, or because our parents were good enough or because we impress people with our socioeconomic status or our education or our, our earning income. Man, we are invited because we have a need. And as we humble ourselves enough to admit our need, you give us the very grace we crave. You give us the honor we don't deserve. You free us to a future we could never earn. Lord, I pray that you would give us the gift of humility as we receive the gift of grace, that as we humble ourselves to receive it, we will be further humbled to give it, that we will crave a deeper experience of it in community with others who also crave grace, that we will come to see the world through our identity in Christ as new creatures in Christ instead of our old identity of our racial or cultural background. I pray for my friends that, man, their, their chest is just tight right now because of anxiety or fear, because these are questions that make them uncomfortable. Spirit, I pray that you will give them the grace to push forward in faith, knowing, Lord, that an experience of grace is so much greater than an experience of comfort. I pray for my friends who have been hurt because of the racial insensitivity because of racial hatred, stereotyping, that, Lord, you would allow them in grace to grow in healing and joy, not being defined by the wounds they've received, but being set free by the healing of the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we want to be a church like Antioch. We want to be a diverse, vibrant community of grace. But we need a deeper, more profound experience of grace to be freed to experience it. Spirit, will you do this? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.